Diez, duz, shi, decum, kim and yen, tien, zen, diesi, dis. All to say, we've hit a milestone. Episode 10 of the Booterverse. Number 10. Booterites, Booteristas, Booterians, Booterlibers, and all you Booter fans out there, it is number 10, and I couldn't be more excited to let you know. It has been an exciting ride so far, and we are so happy to be coming into your houses and homes, your cars, and your private jets. I'd like to go into Mark Cuban's private jet, just to see the cans of Milwaukee's finest strewn about the cabin. If Mark Cuban wants to come on the show, there's always an open invitation. But on this show, we have Afrolatian poet Dorian Hairston with us. We're going to be talking about athletics, poetry, and all a sundry of different things. We have Vasily back with us, thank heavens. And of course, Judy Scheinbaum answers all of your questions, all today on the Booterverse. Today's episode of the Booterverse is brought to you by Synthesizers. Synthesizers, because nothing says awesome like a fake piano. And now for news in my orbit. An Iowa farm recently announced it would honor Al Roker by making him the subject of its 2014 harvest corn maze. Unfortunately, they have had their membership of the National Corn Maze Association revoked. It may seem harsh, a spokesman for the NCMA said, but the whole point of having a corn maze is to provide people with a challenge. This maze is just a straight shot from beginning to end. There are no twists or turns, and no places for people to get adequately lost. Visitors simply rush on through and out the exit. There's just no way to slow it down. It's a travesty. A group representing the rights and well-being of bariatric surgery patients protested the NCMA's decision on the grounds that it is discriminatory against gastric bypass recipients. They claim that it used language that was demeaning and embarrassing to those who have to deal with the new post-operative digestive realities. Roker, who had a gastric bypass procedure in 2002, grabbed headlines two years ago after he admitted to sharding himself at a White House function. The farm maintains that no insult was intended. However, under pressure from the controversy, they are considering raising the maze and replacing it with one depicting Paula Dean. We now turn to a bit of history. The anniversary of the construction of the Berlin Wall has once again come and gone but nobody under the age of 30 seems to have any idea what it actually was. According to a survey published in a Berlin newspaper, the most popular guesses were a Facebook page, an early 80s Swedish hairband, and the name of Beyonce's next baby. One woman interviewed for the article recounted her shock and dismay when her teenage nephew thought the day commemorated a particularly effective defense by the German national team in the 1990 World Cup. A governmental task force has been assembled to find ways to bring Germany's youth to awareness of this piece of their history. So far, their proposals have included a build-your-own-Berlin-wall app, the offer of free educational tattoos, and the chance to win a Hitler Youth haircut by Berlin's top barber, and all in exchange for watching a brief historical video. German Chancellor Angela Merkel gave the plan two thumbs together in a little triangle-shaped thingy-mabob. In a health story, the FDA has announced that beginning in 2016, the Nutrition Facts panel on all U.S. food packaging will be replaced by a similar label entitled Nutrition Fantasies. The government agency says that it has conducted extensive market research and that the people just don't really want to know what they are actually eating. So what can you expect to see on the new labels? 
A prototype released by the FDA showed calories replaced by sunshine hugs, fat grams substituted with a booty love index, and all the remaining identifiable ingredients will be replaced by undecipherable chemical names a mile long. Since everybody assumes those aren't real ingredients anyway, an official memo states, people will respond much better if they saw sugar listed as the number one ingredient, because, quote, people know that that stuff is bad for you. Turning to immigration, the U.S. State Department is poised to deport a Greek pizza maker because he doesn't actually toss the dough when he makes his crusts. The man, who has worked at a Massachusetts pizza restaurant for over 20 years, claimed on his visa application that he possessed the special skill of showmanship in preparation of food, such as tossing pizza dough through the air. Still, the Department of Citizen and Immigration Services rejected his request. Although he admitted that his dough-tossing skills were somewhat exaggerated, he nonetheless appealed the rejection. A U.S. District Court judge ruled to uphold the decision because, in their opinion, he does not actually display any showmanship while performing his duties. Quoted from the deposition, the judge responded that it's a lackluster performance if I've ever seen one. A lawyer representing the pizza restaurant expressed shock, saying that he thought they were in a very strong position. So what if it isn't an Academy Award-winning performance? If the ability to create a fluffy crust with lots of nice little air pockets isn't a good reason to be able to stay in the U.S., I don't know what is. And that's been news in my orbit. Today's episode of the Booterverse is brought to you by 17 Point Turns. 17 Point Turns, because that parking space was a little smaller than you thought, wasn't it? Buddha. And now for a segment we like to call Back in the UU Ukraine with Vasily Krapov. Vasily, you're on the air. Desim, episode 10 as we say in Ukrainian. Emery, you are doing episode 10 for you today. This is a milestone in your life. I'm glad to be a part of episode 10. It is wonderful to have on the show and be here for you. Let me tell you, I have been having the disco fever. It is very bad. I was sitting at home for weeks on end. That is why not on show, but we are back now, and I'm glad to have been here and being here and on the show, and I have special report for you from Ukraine. Vasily, can you go ahead and share that with us now? Of course, I can share with you right now. Let us do this right now. Vasily bring you report on Ukrainian nude beaches. Did you say nude beaches? Of course, yes, because what people wanting to hear about is the nude beaches in Ukraine. It is one of our summer hot spots, as you say. I say hot spots. I like it. And this is where people going in the summer in the Ukraine. Let me tell you, women are like the Russian submarines coming out of water. Okay, flotation device is very visible. It makes young Ukrainian adolescent very happy. Okay, happy in ways should not be. But, you know, for publicing, it's fine. All right, for you. It's uh, okay. We don't need to talk about it. But let me just tell you, Mr. Vasily get very happy as well, if you know what I mean. <laughs> I think we know what you mean, Vasily. Anyway, I also see all manner of people here. We have old men in the speedo, how you say, the, the speedo machining things. They put on the, the, it's very crazy because the belly hang over. They, you don't even know they have having the speedo on and the very unseemly. And the face is very wrinkled. They look like George Hamilton, uh, orange, and uh, speaker John Boehner in the oranging of his face. But this is another story for another day. And let me tell you, it is not only the young and the old, but Vasily is there as well. And what else can you do? I don't understand this word, uh, banana hammock. I don't understand why people are using it. What is banana? What is in hammocking? I do not live in tropic. Okay, for you, Black Sea, it's like 30 degrees Celsius in the summertime. Very not hot. 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 
I believe you mean hot. Yes, of course. It is very not hot in the Black Sea in the summertime. People think tropic, but it's tropic for Ukraine. You know, seriously, uh, 40 degree Fahrenheit for Ukrainian, good timing for to do this, because that is one for us. It's heat wave, you know, the South Seeing Islands. Why? I don't know. But listen, they try to put umbrellas in the drinks down here. It's so silly. One time I put umbrella in caviar and people got all upset because they said, Vasily, umbrella only for drink. I said, listen, caviar is like drink. Eat the fishing eggs. So why would you not put umbrella in it? I want to feel tropical even though this is not the tropic. And what better way to feel tropic than to sing the Jimmy Buffett songing? Are you saying that they have a lot of Jimmy Buffett songs in the Ukraine? Of course, why would you not have Jimmy Buffett songing in Ukraine? What you do is you go to a Ukrainian discotheque and you sing Jimmy Buffett songs. Hello, parrot heading is still very big here in Ukraine. I love it. I put on the Hawaiian shirt and dance around. I have straw hat made of the straw from the horses and it is very fun for me to dance around, especially on the nuding beaches because the discotheques blaring the sound on the, the beaches. Everyone is dancing, especially the people who are, look like Russian submarines coming out of water, you know, the topless and uh, whatnot. But I do not condone this for people under age. We have very strict rule in Ukraine. Well, what is the age restriction in the Ukraine? Well, of course, it is 11 years old. If you are under 11, you cannot come to Nuding Beach, but everyone else is welcome to come, okay? And that is for listener as well on Booterverse Show. I- episode 10, if you are listening, you come to Beach and you have good time. Well, Vasily, I think that's about all we can muster. Thank you so much for your special report. Oh, you are very welcoming. And until next time, have a good time and I'm going to back to you, you Ukraine. That's been another segment with Vasily Krapov. Today's episode of the Booterverse is brought to you by Humpback Whales. Humpback Whales, a name so unfortunate they have to live at the bottom of the sea. And now, for The Last Lung with Judy. Judy Scheinbaum, you're on the Booterverse. Thank you, Emery. As you know, a lot of viewers have been sending in questions, and if you want to send in a question, go ahead and email Booterverse at thebooter.com. It's Buddha, B-U-T-E-R. I want to hear your questions, and I want to help you out, my lovelies. So for today's first question, from Tanya in Tampa. That's right, Tanya in Tampa, my god, the alliteration just blows you away. It's like a southeasterly wind up your hoo-ha. That's right, I said it and I meant it. Tanya writes, how do you celebrate Shark Week? Well, I go down to Bergdorf's because that's what we do, and I bought a shark purse. I know, it was a little ostentatious, but I love it. When people see me walking into temple with that and my mumu, it's like, uh, it's like the heavens have opened up and the Lord himself has shone down upon the temple. It's lovely. I might as well have been the pillar of fire in the desert, leading the people to the promised land. I tell you what, it is a vision in fashion, and the only thing better about Shock Week is Snake Week, because seriously, I've got a python leather belt that would blow you away. I don't understand sharks, though. I mean, who's to say? Who... Who's to go around swimming all the time and never sleeping? Oh, you sleep when you're moving? Who does that? They're not sleepwalking. What causes this? I don't know. I'm not a marine biologist, but if I was, I would say they're anxious. And seriously, they should go to therapy. I tell you, sharks are the most anxious species I know. They really need to cool it down and take some Prozac. 
And what's with all those teeth? I mean, seriously, what about the dentist bills? I swear to God, Eliza's braces were more than a 1997 Chevy Cutlass. And more than a few young men left the apartment screaming and in tears. And I don't know what happened, but I swear to God, those braces were involved. But I digress. Shark Week is fine. I turn into the Discovery Channel and I watch it. It's nice. People shouldn't be scared of sharks, but that's why I don't go near the ocean. Our next question is actually from Mexico. Juan writes, What wine goes best with tacos? Juan, why are you drinking wine with tacos? My God, you are an international disaster. Seriously, they should take you to the Hague and put you up on charges of international ridiculous. I mean, seriously, are you gonna put a nice Shiraz with your tacos? What are you doing, beef, chicken, or fish? Who eats fish tacos anyway? I swear. If there's one thing bad about those Episcopalians in Lent, if there's one thing bad about those people who only eat fish for Lent, I don't know it, I don't get it, it's not part of my thing, Mababa. But seriously, Juan, fish tacos are disgusting. I don't know who decided to make them, but they're bad. And if you try to pair a white wine with it, it's not your white wine choice. It's with your meats, with a white fish taco. Don't do it. And seriously, if you're eating chicken in your tacos and you think a white wine would be good, you're fooling yourself. The only wine to drink with tacos, if you're gonna do it at all, heaven forbid, is to get a nice cabernet, perhaps, with a nice oaky finish. I think you'll be very happy. But I am not endorsing wine with tacos. I want to be very clear on that. But if you have to do it, you have to do it. I I suppose I should commend you on your class. I mean, for heaven's sakes, you're drinking wine in the first place. The only people I know who drink wine are the homeless man on the street and old ladies playing bridge. So you, sir, are in great company. And that's been The Last Long with Judy. We'll be back right after this. Today's episode of The Buddhaverse is brought to you by Drunk Ex-Lovers. Drunk Ex-Lovers. Because waking up to 7,000 unsolicited text messages was exactly what your Tuesday morning needed. Everybody, it is a pleasure to come back with you. And before we start the interview today, let me just say one thing. Double digits! This is a very special episode of the Booterverse. It's episode number 10, and I'm so very excited to be with you. And Dorian Hairston, poet, athlete, and a lot of other things that we'll get into a little later, <laughs> is here with me. Dorian, thanks so much for joining us on the Booterverse. Th- thank you for having me. Dorian, so you're a poet and an athlete. How do those two things live together? Uh, they, it, it's a lot. Uh, I'll, I'll start off with saying that. Um, I manage them pretty well. Uh, baseball takes up a lot of time, and then... Whatever time I have left over, I usually spend on, on poetry, and that's how it, it works out. So what position do you play on the field? Uh, I play right and left field, so either one of the corner outfield positions I usually spend my time on. Do you ever find that you're reciting poetry while you're out there? Occasionally. I mean, I don't go through the whole poem, but uh, sometimes I'll have poems that I've memorized, especially if I have a uh, an open mic or a performance coming up. I'll be out in the outfield, and occasionally I'll start to hear the words come up in my head, and I'll go through half the poem before I'm like, whoa, wait, I need to pay attention. Absolutely. Do you ever find that you're out in left field and you just don't know what to do? <laughs> uh, not really. Well, it depends. Uh, with life, yes. With uh, baseball, no. <laughs> Excellent. So you've been trained well. Uh, you are a collegiate athlete. I think we should probably say yes. that. How do you manage 
both trying to be artistic, the athletics, and uh, your schoolwork, because I'm, I'm guessing you have some schoolwork. I have a lot of schoolwork. I'm taking 19 hours this semester. Uh, as Dear well Lord, as, are yes. you a glutton for punishment? Wow. It, it is. And then on top of that, I pledged a fraternity last semester, Phi Beta Sigma. So Did you got, get in? I got in. So No surprise. I am now a man of Phi Beta Sigma Fraternity Incorporated. And, um, incorporate. Do you have to say the it, ink gotta, after every time? You gotta time make sure you throw in the incorporated as well. And um, uh, it's it's a lot. It's a lot. But I think uh, growing up, my parents made sure that I had a lot on my plate, so it keeps me out of trouble. And I've that's learned, good because looking yes. at you, you are certainly a <laughs> troublemaker, you. my friend. <laughs> at but least it, that's what you tell the ladies, <laughs> I'm sure. And uh, it, just time management really is what. What helps me keep everything in, in order. That's great. So did you grow up, you talked about your um, your upbringing. Did you grow up writing, grow up, you know, reciting poetry? <laughs> there are two answers to that question. Yes my mom, and no? <laughs> my mom would say yes. I, I would say, I would say no. Uh, my mom says to this day that she was 100% sure that I was going to be a writer. Um, I love telling. Is she, is she clairvoyant? Yes, I, I think so. Um, I I got in trouble for a lot of things that I hadn't even done yet when mm. I was when I was younger. So, <laughs> yes. Oh, we've all been there, my friend. We've all been there. But she she would would pay really close attention to the writing that I would do in school, and she tells me now that she would tell my dad he's a really good writer, and I thought that growing up writing uh, wasn't something that guys do. That was more for girls, and I, especially poetry. So I kind of ran away from it, uh, but my mom kept on pushing me to it. And uh, so the answer is yes, my mom would say that I was always a writer. I don't think I became a writer until I recognized myself as such, and that wasn't until my sophomore year of high school. Well, I think this is an interesting question because you're sort of a man's man. I mean, you're a collegiate athlete, which is amazing. Um, but you also have this very artistic side. Why is it, do you think, that the arts are sort of considered to be perhaps feminine or unmanly or even uncool? That's a that's a really good question. I've been struggling with that since I first started writing. I, I don't have a definite answer. I just know that for me, that, that caused a lot of uh, identity problems growing up. I, I wasn't sure... Because I, I really enjoyed books. I really enjoyed learning. Um, I really enjoyed trying to articulate what I learned and my opinion on what I learned. And that, in some circles, especially around my, uh, my friends in sports, they would bring up questions about my masculinity or even my sexuality. And, and those things, uh, I, I'm not sure what they had to do with, with my enjoying learning and, and writing and all of these things and I I was really struggling with that growing up but but I haven't figured out why that is and it's very sad and it causes a lot of problems for a lot of kids who are trying to figure out who they are in this crazy crazy society we live in sure absolutely and I would venture to say that it has more to do with those individuals and those guys and the mm -hmm. way they approach their world rather than the way you approach yours. Absolutely. There's a quote in The Best Man that always sticks out to me and it's, it's from Audre Lorde. It's define yourself for yourself because if you don't, you'll be crunched into other people's fantasies for you and eaten alive. And that really, that really stuck with me and I, I really enjoyed that. And it wasn't until I fully understood what that quote meant that I was 100% comfortable with, with being an artist. 
Sure. And being an artist as well as an athlete, as well as a man, just an individual, a human. Absolutely. So you've got all of these different facets to your personality and to your life. It must be really rewarding when you're excelling both in athletics and in, in the arts as well. It, it's very, very rewarding. And it, it's, uh, it's very, I, I enjoy it a lot because it allows me to be, if I fail in baseball, I always have poetry. If I'm struggling in poetry, I've always got the classroom. There's always something for me to excel at at some point in time. If I fail somewhere, it's not long before I have another opportunity to succeed. That's the way I look at it. It's really interesting that you talk about these different opportunities. And when you were a child, you were always so busy. Do you think we're over-programming students and, and, and kids and young adults? Yes and no. I think... Uh, what I've my mom's my mom's in the uh, classroom. She teaches at Scapa. She's a tenured teacher over there. Uh, my dad is in. in um, he's getting ready to retire from Ashland Incorporated here here pretty soon. But for them, when I was growing up, they always pushed me to learn uh, math, science, and learn how to apply it to everyday life. Uh, and and in some aspects, I've seen. A lot of people start to overprogram to a test. So then your ability to understand and reason in everyday life is out the window. You're just thinking about how to answer questions on a test. So I think in some areas we are overprogramming to a test, but in others where you, you can overprogram, but you can overprogram in a good way, like, like my parents did. Sure, and in a well rounded way. Absolutely. I mean, it seems like you were involved both now and as a child, in a lot of different activities, but in very different ways. And it seems like certain parents will push their children only into the arts or only into the sciences or only into, you know, these very heady sort of activities instead of giving the child a chance to have a rounded experience, whereas you said they can apply those things to their everyday life. Absolutely. Growing up, my dad, it was, you got to play soccer, you got to play I played soccer, scored five goals in the first game, and then next thing I know... How old were you? How old were you? It was I was like five or six. Okay, so you were five. I mean, you just were excelling at that age. Yeah. I mean, that's just amazing. <laughs> and uh, my my uh, my dad tells me now that, he was like, oh, you were really good, but after the game, you came over and said, I'm done. But they pushed me into everything. I had to at least try it. He said, you can't quit. I had to finish out that that, that soccer season, and then I didn't have to play again. But they always pushed me. It was literally into everything I possibly could have gotten into. And if I didn't like it, I had to finish it, and then I could stop doing it. And I think uh, a lot of parents don't, don't do that, and uh, I benefited greatly from that. Well, I think basically what your parents need to do is have a parenting class. <laughs> Actually, we should have them on the podcast to talk about parenting. Maybe they have some insights for all of the young mothers and fathers out there that uh, you know are just having babies. It seems like all of all of the people in my atmosphere, literally a dozen babies that I know of, have been born in like the last three months. Wow. Now, speaking of excelling and giving birth to ideas and notions and well. As far as I know, you've never given birth to progeny, but <laughs> who's to say? I mean, the miracles of modern science. You have been rightly rewarded for your efforts in poetry. Do you want to talk about some of the accolades you've received? And don't don't feel self-aggrandizing because I think the, the listeners need to hear what you've accomplished in, in this realm. It's it's quite amazing in my mind. Well, I was um, published my freshman year. Well, my freshman year, I became the youngest member of the Afro-Latin Poets. 
the that same year I was published in Pluck. Let's see. After that, um, I was published in the uh, literary journal on campus. Uh, I've won competitions. Uh, there was a competition in high school for uh, spoken word poetry. I won that. It was at Common Grounds coffee shop a which coffee is a fantastic shop. place by the way look a plug he's even listen he's not even out of college and he's already plugging things my god you've got a future my friend uh, but it, it, it's i my mom has keeps better record of it i i just enjoy writing and sharing the gift i i, I have a difficult time keeping up with all of all of the things that have happened in my success. Sure. Well, let's talk about some of those things that you mentioned that the listeners may not know. What is Pluck? Pluck is the uh, the literary journal for Appalachian Afrolachian arts, and it is uh, Frank X. Walker's uh, publication, and it's run through the uh, I believe the University of Kentucky, and uh, it is published twice a year. And uh, it's got art, it's got poetry, it's got short essays, short stories, everything you can think of. It's, it's a great journal. Tell us about Afrolachian and the Afrolachian poets of which you are one of the younger members. Uh, it, it's, a, it's really a, a family of, of writers, of not just poets, but of, of very good writers from the uh, Appalachian Mountains. Uh, the Appalachian Mountain region that extends from Mississippi all the way up to New York. And they they try to, or we try to, bring the invisible visible. And and that's really, Ooh. yeah, that's, that's our mission. And that's what, uh, and I'm the youngest one. And I kind of, like, these are people that I look up to. These are, I mean, Frank X. Walker, Poet Laureate of Kentucky. And he's my mentor. And then I've got, Kelly Norman Ellis, Mitchell L.H. Douglas, Ellen Hagen, who taught me at, at GSA when I was a sophomore in high school. And now they're saying that I'm a part of this family and I'm kind of getting, I'm, I'm still uh, trying to get used to it and find find the words to really articulate how I feel about it because it's, it's, um, it's unreal. It's just a, a wonderful opportunity not only for you, but it's a, it's a very exclusive group. It, it's a, how many members are there um, in total? There's, uh, I don't know the exact number, but around 50 there have been in, in history. So it's 50 in history. Yeah, so not so currently in history. Wow. I mean, that's a, that's an incredibly small number of which you can count yourself a member. Now let's talk a little bit about regional issues. You talked about um, Appalachia or Appalachia, depending mm-hmm. on where you're from and how you'd like to say it. When you think of Appalachia or Appalachia, what do you conjure in your mind? Why is this something that you're a part of? Why is this something you want to be a part of? What does it say about the region and about you? Well, uh, for me, whenever I think of Appalachia, I always think of, number one, mountains, of course, sure. obviously. Um, and then at the same time, I also... I'm a little saddened by mountaintop removal, so. Uh, but my a... friend, there there has to be a place to put your putting green, <laughs> and the mountains are not flat; they it's... don't plateau. So, I mean, do you think it's just another way to get in your round of nine? It, it, it is. It, it is very sad. I I can't begin to to find the words to talk about how how disgusting it is to me to see these beautiful mountains, and then they just take 
take them away. Well, I think it's interesting that this issue has made a poet speechless. <laughs> so, I mean, if there's any sort of notion about how destructive mountaintop removal mining could be, perhaps that's uh, one indication. Yeah, it's it's awful. And then I also, but I also think about growing up. I played baseball in these mountains. That's that's where. That was my real connection growing up. I, I grew up in Veterans Park. I played for the Southeastern All-Stars from the time I was eight all the way up until I was 12. No, six until 12. And then uh, after that, I played Southeastern uh, Babe Ruth, and we just traveled all over Kentucky and the surrounding areas. My dad's from West Virginia, so I think about going to Williamson and, and seeing that, and that's the heart of Appalachia. And it's just those are the those are the things that I think of when I when I hear that word. I, I think of uh, great music. I think of uh, community, family. I think when other people think of Appalachia, they have a very different notion of what it could be. Absolutely. Perhaps, and this is most certainly a stereotype. I will I will make that known right off the bat. But I think people think of Appalachia as something where hillbillies live and, you know, it's uncultured and, you know, lots of poor people and, you know, it's just this really impoverished and low class or dirty sort of place. Uh, And you're saying that's not the case. That's not the case at all. I'd spent the summer up in uh, Canandaigua, New York, and... It, it's it's very different up there. It's it's I I felt homesick. That was the first time, in my entire life I've been away from, from the state of Kentucky, much less Lexington, uh, for longer than two weeks, and uh, I was there for two months, and people that's the that was the stereotype up there. But the whole time I'm thinking that's that's not that's not what it's about down here. It's it's about all those things that I mentioned earlier, and, and a lot more that that I'm sure. I don't, we don't have the time to really get into. Sure, but right. the 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 culture is just amazing, and I feel like I'm. It, it is a part of me just as much as I'm a part of it. Well, you mentioned uh, several different aspects of the culture. Do you have a favorite? Oh, I mean, I know they're very numerous, but is yeah. there something that you just gravitate toward when you're in that region? I really enjoy, and a lot of my a lot of my friends are kind of shocked at it. I really enjoy the music. So like bluegrass music. I really, I really enjoy bluegrass music. I haven't heard any bluegrass music that I don't like. It's not something that I, I like go to the baseball field and listen to right before a game. But I've been to several bluegrass concerts and I, I enjoy it. I, I love the music. As as well you should. I'm not going to tell the listeners whether I like bluegrass music or not. <laughs> there may or may not be a banjo around here as we speak. So I don't I don't play and I don't pluck, but I will say uh, it, it can be a lovely instrument and, and a fun type of music to like. Um, so you were up in New York. Did you get to go to the city? I went to uh, Rochester twice. Mm. and uh, Now that's not the city that, that I'm was... talking. I mean, Rochester is a beautiful place. <laughs> As as Rochester goes, unfortunately, I did not get to go to New York, New York. Ah, um, I wanted to, but I felt that uh, I'll have another opportunity at some point in time to go to New York. Now, I'm not going to call this like your mother, but you may have quite a few opportunities <laughs> in the future if you keep on going the way you're going. So, Appalachia, we talked about you know mountaintop removal, and we talked about music and and your words. Do you find that your poetry comes from 
that place in some way. Absolutely. I think my my poetry is comes from directly music. Growing up, my my mom, I actually have a poem that I'll, I'll share later about uh, cleaning up the house, listening to music. And as a poet, that you, you get to look at life and, and the really small things, like two hours of cleaning with your mother on a Saturday. And look at the music that you're listening to and its influence on where you are now. And for me, all I got to listen to was R&B growing up. And, and that, that music and all kinds of music really just influenced my poetry day in and day out. And did they're you, intertwined. Did you get to whistle while you work? <laughs> I could. Unfortunately, I couldn't whistle back then. But uh, can you I, whistle now? I can. Not not fantastically though, and I, I know. I'm not gonna make you whistle into the <laughs> microphone. I will take your word for it. <laughs> On the baseball diamond, to shift gears a little bit, uh, is there a lot of chew? Uh, not not at the university. That is illegal. Oh, illegal. Oh, I That's like against, it already. Against the rules, so. Um, why do, perhaps I should ask this question, why do many baseball players chew? That, I, I don't know. I, I personally do not. I was the president of Teens Against Tobacco Use. Oh, for heaven's sakes. In high what? school, so. <laughs> what, what haven't you done? <laughs> so, uh, that, that is something that I've never even tried, uh, in my life, but, I, th- I think it, it has a lot to do with the, the stigma with, that goes along with baseball. It's just, that's just something you expect baseball players to do. So a lot of baseball players just end up doing it. It's something that I also would expect people from Appalachia to do. And you, my friend, are bucking two stereotypes <laughs> right here, right on the show. Now, when we're talking about the Appalachian poets, it has a very interesting makeup of words, right? Uh, Afra uh, in the front and, you know you know, Latin at the Mm -hmm. back. Uh, Obviously, we're bringing two interesting cultures together. Does it have a predominantly African-American root to it, or does it mean something broader than that? Well, the word actually comes from uh, Frank X. Walker. He he kind of coined the word, created the word. And it comes from the the fact that uh, a, a long time ago, Appalachian... And the dictionary meant that you had to be white from the mountains. So it excluded this entire culture from, uh, from its definition. So he decided to create the word Afrolachin to kind of encompass all that was left over, the, the, the other beautiful parts of the culture that the definition excluded. So that's, that's where the word comes from. And it's not necessarily predominantly African-American. It's just all the, all the beautiful stuff that, that the definition kind of left out. Yeah, I think people should probably take a minute to think about that yeah. because you, again, I'm going to buy into the stereotype of Appalachia for a second. I'll be sort of the devil's advocate, if you will. You don't really think of an African-American com- community or other sorts of communities mm-hmm. existing in the mountains or in the in the broader region. Very sadly, that, that that's the case. And it, it's... That's that's what most people think, but it, it's not. That's not the case. Uh, we are present as well as other cultures, and we need to. I I, I feel like uh, that that stereotype should change. It, it it can be, it can we can have a positive image of a multicultural Appalachia. As well, we should. But I think most people don't even know it exists. Mm-hmm. I think exactly. the problem is certainly just educating the people that 
listen, the notion of Appalachia is much bigger and the right. Appalachian region is much bigger than just, you know, a bunch of people living in the mountains, you know, with their shotgun in their cabins. Make the invisible visible. My God, you're <laughs> buying into your own mission statement and I love it. What ways have you been able to make the invisible visible? Right now I'm working on a uh, manuscript about Josh Gibson, who was a Negro Leagues catcher in the 20s, 30s, and 40s. And he hit over 800 home runs in his career. He died in his uh, mid to late 30s uh, from a brain tumor. He mm. was addicted to heroin, uh, marijuana, alcohol, and women. So, well, who isn't addicted yeah. to women? I'll tell you that much. <laughs> it was a pretty. It was a very deadly combination. Well, sure they are. And, They're everywhere. Yeah, exactly. The so. women, I mean. <laughs> and then uh, he he had this very successful career, and he was able to separate his addictions off the field from his uh, his success on the field. And I, I'm working on a book of persona poems about his life and what it must have been like for people around him to watch him, and then what it must have been like for him. And I'm sure that uh, being black and being denied the opportunity to be considered one of the greatest, period, uh, had a lot to do with, with his struggles as, as a human being. So you're basically taking your two loves of poetry and baseball, and you're writing an, a poem, you're writing a piece, from his perspective. Why not? <laughs> I could think of nothing better for you to do. <laughs> exactly. And that's and that's so encouraging when you're able to, again, marry these two loves. So even in your poetry, you're able to bring forth all of your experiences and all of the things that you really appreciate and find to really... And all those things that make up you. That Absolutely. That make you, you, as they say. <laughs> Um, have you been able to do much study on uh, the Negro League or, or any other? I've done. I, I really want to go to Pittsburgh. I have not got, gotten the opportunity to go up there. And I really want to go to the Negro Leagues Museum. And I haven't had the opportunity to go there either. But as soon as I, as soon as I have a, a couple free days during the year or whenever I graduate and it's time to head off to the real world, that those will be my first two stops. Uh, but I've done a lot of research through um, literature on the Negro Leagues, uh, not just with Josh Gibson, but with Satchel Paige and Cool Papa Bell, uh, Leonard Johnson, Oscar Charleston, all those guys that a lot of people don't know about because they just had more melanin in their skin than their counterparts. Sure. Well, I mean, and, you know, baseball, n not only when we're talking about issues of race, but there was a period of, you know, 10 to 20 years where certain parts of baseball were m lost yeah. because of war or, or other sort mm -hmm. of things. And so, you know, there's a lot of history that's a little spotty in people's minds because, you know, there were a lot of other things going on at the time and baseball had to sort of maneuver with the times. And so it was interesting, you know, I mean, they made a league of their own, you know, yeah. like 20 years ago now, dear Lord. Uh, you know, but I mean, that was one small part of baseball's history. And here's another part that, again, a lot of people don't know about, but that you're trying to bring to the fore. And that's great. So with all of this, with all that you're doing, you've got to be very busy. 
Absolutely. And you probably don't have a lot of, of time. We talked about time management, but, you know, with being an athlete and with all of your other a- uh, endeavors, both academic and artistic, what do you do in your spare time? Uh, I, uh, I have a very beautiful girlfriend. I spend time with her uh, when I have the opportunity. And then I also uh, I write and I read. Um, that's... I hope she listens to this <laughs> because you, my friend, are going to get some major brownie points. <laughs> And if she doesn't give them to you, I say tisk tisk. <laughs> and then, uh, but I just, and in my free time, I occasionally I'll sleep, but mm-hmm. <laughs> that's really that's really about it. My my free time, I choose to spend my free time doing things that I enjoy. A lot of other people like to spend their free time just watching TV mindlessly, but I like to get out and do things that I really enjoy. Anything specific? Um, I mean, I like do you to, like ice cream? I mean, what? Was I I love orange leaf. There's another plug. Uh, My God, th- I mean, <laughs> we got one for the Appalachian poets, <laughs> a coffee shop, an ice cream shop. Uh, I I really enjoy movies, hmm. but I enjoy different types of like I like V for Vendetta. Ooh. Uh, that's my that's Very my favorite that's my favorite movie hands down not even a close second do you have the mask i i do not have the mask but i am looking for one i'm looking for a, a, an entire v wardrobe oh perhaps for halloween or just for in general just, just in general just just because you know when you're traipsing around the mountains exactly. of appalachia you know you can you know look very interesting exactly no, because I think a man traipsing around in a you know a white mask and a black cape and hat. I know. I think it's a good look. Talking in riddles, it's perfect. Sure, and rhyme, mm. both. It's delightful. A lot of alliteration. Indeed, and who doesn't love some good alliteration? Exactly. I mean, I know I do. <laughs> now, a little later, we will have you read a selected work. Um, but is there any place where people can go to read your work, any plugs that you want to make, anything? I always give people a chance to talk to the listeners if you want to tell the listeners anything, anything you want. This is your opportunity to do so. I, unfortunately, I, I do not. I'm, I'm only 20 years old. I'm a junior in college. I'm still trying to, you know, figure figure out how this whole thing works. Are you telling me you're humble too? <laughs> My God. I mean... If things don't work out with your girlfriend, if any <laughs> women hear this, they will scoop you up in 2.5 seconds. But I, my, my mom is, is talking about, uh, you know, helping me kind of maneuver this situation. She has some experience in this and uh, trying to become like a manager, quote unquote. Uh-oh. And, uh, mama managers. She's going to be the mama bear. <laughs> She'll get you. And uh, I'm, I, I really want a website. And that's what I'm looking for as my first first thing. But I, I have a Twitter, Papa Doc four four P A P A D O C four four. That's a baseball nickname. It's a very long story, but I, I earned the nickname well. Okay, well, we will just have to leave the listeners guessing as to why you got that nickname. He's on Twitter, so go there, follow him. And without further ado, this is Dorian Hairston. She asked me where diamonds come from. I would like to introduce you to a new school of thought. Just imagine for a second a perfect world where we, our people, are perfectly positioned on the crucifix of civilization, untouched by the corruption that seems to follow those that would have us believe them pure. Where we are taught the truth, our origins, the 
origins of life come not from some small village in Europe compiled of fair-skinned, blue-eyed, blonde-haired individuals, but instead the mother continent. That the first people, the originals, looked beautiful like us and sat on thrones and wore crowns made of pure gold and diamonds and silver and knew exactly where the jewels came from and danced to music about how beautiful our women are and great it is to be born with color. And they would share everything, food and clothes, and lived in villages, not projects, and knew their mother well and treated her like she was theirs and mortal and never knew struggle because they were always together and would have a really difficult time understanding how Christopher Columbus discovered something that had already been discovered and would understand manifest destiny was just a rationalization for white supremacy and had enough sense to know that technically Jesus was bronze, not white, but yet still he was pure. I would like to take you to school, teach you that fulfilling a stereotype only does exactly what the man wants. Fatherless black children, husbandless black women, and worst of all, a backboneless black community. See, I'm confused why the black man survived the cruelest 450 years of oppression in human history and traded it all to become a real nigger. Certified by those who believe continuing to objectify our women and neglect our natural intelligence is something to be proud of. So that he can try to forget that we didn't get here alone or by free will and that our women need us too and we need them. The future is now and darker than ever but still just as beautiful and most importantly that we are on the same team. Maybe if you paid attention in school, broke the binding on a couple books, you would see what they did to Malcolm and Martin in history and did the math to know that we are a member of the majority globally and knew from biology that melanin makes you dark and handsome and we have the most and paid attention in PE enough to know that they buy memberships to Suntan City to get just as beautiful as we are. That maybe, just maybe, we could pull up our pants, study books, not streets. Our people, instead of the people who put us here, return to our throne together. See, in my school, I teach the truth. That tea and Skittles are only weapons when you are guilty of being black. That allegedly whistling at a white woman while being a dark and beautiful child is the equivalent of rape. And that surrendering to the police, if you look like Mike Brown, the president of the United States, Emmett Till, Trayvon Martin, my father, my brother, maybe even me, could quite possibly and justifiably cost you your life. But the most important thing I teach is that when the bullets stop, when the riots cease, the canines put back on their leash and the fallen finally allowed to rest in peace, I teach the only lesson worth remembering. Never, ever, ever forget where diamonds come from and ideas are bulletproof. Well, I hope you have enjoyed those wonderful words uh, by poet Dorian Hairston. Uh, this has been another episode of The Buddhaverse. <laughs>